Today, uh, we are in the last week of our series called All of Life, um, and we're going to look at the topic of work. Each uh, week, we've highlighted a book. This week, I'm going to highlight Tim Keller's book, Every Good Endeavor, uh, which he wrote with Catherine Leary Alsdorf as well. Excellent, excellent book. Encourage you to go look at that. The subtitle is Connecting Your Work to God's Work. So that should be appealing in and of itself, connecting your work to God's work. I'll tell you, I've been working up to this day today because I don't like either of the two teams playing in the Super Bowl. So this is work for me to, to figure this out. I'm not a, a Patriots fan. I got to work at it to just not vomit when I see him go on the field. Um, but, it's, but even more than that, I really have to work to deal with Seahawks fans because it's, it's like... It's bad. Um, this morning I was coming on stage and talking to Matt Dresback about Seahawk fans and my work for it. And he said something really, really good. He said, Seahawk fans are like rich, privileged, spoiled Raider fans. <laughs> and I was like, that is perfect. I said, that's the best line you've ever said. You're in th- that is an amazing, amazing line. I'm saying that before we, we start today. So we're in this series called All of Life. If you're around Redemption Church very often, uh, you'll hear this phrase, all of life is all for Jesus. You'll see it on t-shirts, it's plastered on the outside, south side of the commons. All of life is all for Jesus. And the reason we say that so often is that Jesus calls us to follow him with nothing less than our whole lives. And yet we live in a culture, and we live in a church culture, in which we truncate, we shrink what it means to be a Christian. The sad truth is in America today, there are millions of churchgoers, millions and millions of churchgoers who are Christians for only a few hours a week. They view their Christianity and their worship as a leisure activity. It's that thing we do Sunday mornings, like we go to the lake on Saturday mornings. And yet that is not what the Bible allows us to do with our Christian faith. Our Christian faith is a way of life. It's everything we do, we do to glorify God. We do before the face of God. We do to worship God. One of the things we've done so radically wrong is allow our minds to wrap around a false idea of worship That worship is just what we do on Sunday mornings when we sing songs and when we hear the word of God preached. The Bible does not allow us to do that. When the Bible defines worship in this book that we just studied of Romans chapter 12, it says that your spiritual act of worship is presenting your bodies to God as a living sacrifice. One of the last times I was here preaching, I asked you, what is it that you do that's not in your body? And the simple answer is nothing. So what Paul's saying is you present your bodies, all of your life to God as an offering and a sacrifice to him. That's spiritual worship. Spiritual worship is not getting yourself in some ethereal up there place, feeling really good about it and saying you're a Christian. A Christian has to do with the way you walk, the way you talk, the way you eat, the way you drink, and as we'll see today, the way you work. The way we conduct ourselves matters. The Apostle Paul, who wrote the book of Romans, wrote majority of the New Testament, has two statements very similar, one in Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, and one in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1, in which he says, the way we conduct ourselves, 
Allah, the way we live, all of our lives matters. Philippians 1.27, he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. Conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ. That means there's a way to conduct yourself that's unworthy of the gospel. That the gospel is not just a message that gets you into heaven after you die. It is that, but it's way more than that. It's a message for life. And there's a way in which you conduct yourself in a manner worthy of that. In Ephesians 4, he says, conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the calling to which you've been called. So if there's a manner worthy of the gospel and a manner worthy of the calling to which we've been called, we have to ask ourselves, what's the calling that we've been called to if we are those who've been called to Jesus? Now, this is going to be helpful even for those of you who are in this room that would say you're not Christians. Because the book of John actually says those who are in the world have the right to judge whether or not Christians are Christians. So this is great for you. If you want to know what the calling upon Christian's life is, I'm about to tell you. What is the calling to which we've been called? The calling is nothing less than what Matthew tells us is that we are to be the salt of the earth. The light of the world. That in a world where sin has brought darkness and death, the church is meant to be a light in everything that we do. That we as Christians and we as Christian people together in the church are meant to live all of our lives for Jesus, saying to the world, this is what it looks like to enjoy food under the lordship of Christ. This is what it means to enjoy it, not indulge in it. This is what it means to work when Jesus is king. This is the way you treat employees. And this is the way we respond to our bosses. And this is the way we pursue profit. And this is the way our marriages function. This is the way we respond to our children. That the church is meant to be the light saying to the world, this is life. And life is only found under the one who says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is what life looks like when the one true God is on the throne, submitted and surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ. So why do we teach a series called All of Life, where we deal with parenting, and we deal with marriage, and we deal with finances, and today we deal with work? Because Christianity is a way of life. It is an all-the-time way of life. It's not a part-time gig It's an all-the-time gig. So we're going to look today at work through a biblical lens and see this, that work is intrinsic, that work is imperative, it's an imperative, and work is instrumental. So before we get this through the Bible, I want to define work really briefly. When we think about work and think about how often we do it, uh, think about it like this. Work includes any activity, any activity, whether paid or unpaid, that brings blessing and benefit to the world around you. Work is any activity, paid or unpaid, that brings blessing and benefit to the world around me. So work isn't just what you get paid for. Because when there are people that sit at the front desk on Sundays and during the week volunteering their time, they're working. 
When my wife goes to our kids' school on Friday for most of the day, she is working, though she doesn't get paid. When I stay at home on Friday to watch my two girls and don't get paid for it, I realize my wife works harder during the week than I do for that which I get paid for. So work is that which includes any activity, paid or unpaid, whether you're retired or disabled. We work, and we work because work is intrinsic. Now, I wasn't going to say this, but I have to say it. So for all of the people that went to U of A, let me define intrinsic, okay? (laughs) Tom taught me well. Um, So intrinsic means it belongs naturally. It's essential. What I'm telling you is that work is an essential component to the way God made the world and the way God made you And you and me, work is intrinsic. Work is of God, and now hear me, work is good. So it's intrinsic, and it's intrinsically good. I've been, you know, when you get older, um, the way you eat has to change. Not just because you gain weight, but your body starts doing weird things with, with foods that it never did before, right? And dairy recently has just not been sitting well with me as of the last few years, And so I don't eat, and I especially can't eat anything with, like, heavy cream in it. So people will say, well, you love ice cream. Yeah, well, let me tell you about something. So my wife's on this, uh, checking out this fruits and vegetables diet, and so she said, there's this ice cream I found that we can make, and it's basically you freeze bananas, you blend them up, and you throw in, like, prunes and dates and whatever, and it comes out, and it's at least the consistency of ice cream, right? But honestly, it is massively dishonoring to ice cream to call this ice cream. (laughs) Massively dishonoring. I mean, you taste it, you're like, it's blended up frozen bananas. Or somebody will say, oh, I know you can't eat dairy, but there's almond milk ice cream, and that's like ice that's white. Okay, And, and, and here's the thing. You go, it's not ice cream, because there's something intrinsic to ice cream called cream. (laughs) Right? It's it's foundational. So what I want to say to you is there's something foundational, essential to the world in which we live in. There is something foundational and essential to you as a human being, and it's called work. So if we look, if there's any way to understand something that's essential or foundational, you have to go to the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis, which is a book that means, the word Genesis means beginnings. And when you start Genesis... It starts with God, but it starts with God creating, God making. When you create and you make something, you are working. What the very beginning of the Bible shows us is that God himself is a worker. He makes and he creates in all of his triune being, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit are creating. And then he says in Genesis chapter 1, let us make man in our image So God created man in his own image, Genesis 1.27. In the image of God, he created them. Now, if something's made in your image and you're a worker, then the image gets transferred, implemented, and becomes intrinsic in that creation. So we are made as workers. Male and female, he created them, and God blesses them. And God says to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So listen to God's first command 
that he gives human beings. Be fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdue. Have dominion. Genesis chapter 2 colors this even more. In Genesis 2.5, it says, When no bush of the field was yet in the land, and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So the way in which that really reads is there's no bush yet, and no small plant in the field had sprung up. For the Lord God had not caused it to rain. You need rain for plants. And what else do you need for plants to flourish? Somebody to till the ground. He says there was no rain. And because there was no man or woman to work the ground. It then later says that God forms man out of the dust of the ground. Showing God again getting his hands dirty in the creation of male and female. And then... It's, he create, he's created this garden, and in chapter 2, verse 15, he says this. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. Work it and keep it is just shorthand for be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue, have dominion. So let's think about those phrases for a minute. Rule and subdue, be fruitful and multiply. Fruitful means create. Don't just think about this as human beings having babies, though that's a part of it. Being fruitful and multiply is having babies, but it's creating in all forms. Use all of what God has given you to be creative, multiply, scale it, and grow it. If you're the creator or the initiator of a company or a corporation or anything, the next question is then how do we grow it? How do we make it bigger? That's the multiplication idea. Rule and subdue is lead and manage. Dominion is have ownership over this. So here's my question to you. What would the world have looked like if two people were in the Garden of Eden and obeyed God's command to be fruitful and multiply, rule and subdue, and to have ownership over what God has made? What would this garden begin to look like? Well, one, it would get more populated because they would fulfill that command in regards to having more babies. But they would also be using all of the abilities God's given them to make things out of what God had already made and things would be built. Houses would be built. Cars would be invented. Companies would be started. Organizations would have to happen in order that one person didn't walk into another. And then when cars were made, that streets were there. What would it change from? It changed from a garden to a city. Interesting enough, in the very end, when the new heavens and new earth are described, they're described as a garden city. So if you're the person going, I don't like cities, I like gardens. Or if you're an urbanite, the reality is, you're both going to get the best of all worlds. It's a garden city because of what we would be obeying. But there's this reality of work being good um, that I want you to feel and I want you to experience it. Work has something to do with production and producing things. And feeling good about them in all kinds. We now live in a world in which humanity did that. Did what God said. Was fruitful and multiply. Rule and subdued. Took ownership. Um, we know and we're going to talk about this in a minute. In many ways in twisted form because of sin. But we carried on because it was intrinsic to our nature. So now we have rooms filled with people in cities of over 5 million people. Like the one that we live in. 
And work is intrinsic in you. You can't get away from it, and it's good. And let me tell you, you know it's good. Because even today, if you go into an unpaid task in between now, this worship service, and when you watch the Super Bowl at 4.30 this afternoon, you have a task to set out. Many of you may say, we got to get our home set up. Or somebody else needs, hey, i got to finally get that garage painted. And you go, ah. But when you finally paint the garage and get it done, the gratification you feel on producing something isn't just, thank God it's now done. But if you've done it well, you have this moment that you look back and go, yes. Even when you clean up a kid's mess, right? Like you're cleaning a diaper. There's this moment that you see a mess, it smells like a mess, it's a train wreck, and when you finally finish the task of cleaning that child up, you know you've served the child, that they're not going to get a rash on their bum, and at the same time, you know you've served the rest of the people at your Super Bowl party, because that child no longer stinks, and there's something about it that you go, you know what, I got every last drop cleaned up off that person. You may think that's a little bit of a stretch, but Martin Luther actually wrote an article in which he speaks about the glories of changing a diaper. And many of us so don't believe in the power of work and its ability to even satisfy us or serve our neighbor that we neglect the beauty of what our hands have to do. My wife rejoices when our kids are cleaned in a bath. In the midst of all chaos at bath time at night, she comes out to me and she has stated to me more than once, if you knew the gratification I feel through clean children. I've done it well. And that's true whether it's a pipe that's been fixed, a business that's been created, a latte that's been made, a cab that's been driven, gratification is built into the very fabric in the way God wants us to be human, in the way he wants us to operate. Work has unbelievable opportunity. And yet you go, oh, you say work's good, but work for me stinks. It's horrible. And I would say to you, whether you're a Christian or non-Christian, that's great that you brought that up because it testifies that the Bible's true. Because Genesis 3 says that when sin came into the world through human disobedience, sin, sin spread everywhere, even into the very land that we work from and into the very hearts of the people we work with and for. And therefore, he says, now by the sweat of our brows will we work. Which doesn't mean that work is now bad. It, it was created before the fall is very good. It stays very good, but it's been distorted by sin. And so now, how does sin distort work? It's by the sweat of our brow. Well, one major way that sin distorts work is we now make work about us. Work becomes selfish rather than a means to serve. We now go to business school in which they tell us the purpose of business is only about making profit rather than first about serving by making a profit. It's why companies and corporations that start and actually do put the customer first, not just for their bottom line, but actually put them first, are so unbelievable because they're tapping into the way God really intended it to be. Whether they're Christians or not, they tap into the way God really meant to be. And you as the customer, or you as an employee, or you as the one who structures the place of work as a means to serve first, receive unbelievable gratification from it. 
Sin distorts that and says it's first and foremost about me. Sin twists and distorts it and now makes work into a God. And we have people that are workaholics that neglect their family and neglect their rest and ultimately neglect the way God made them to be because we worship the created thing, as Paul says in Romans, rather than the creator who's forever to be praised. An aspect of sin infecting work is laziness. We now will look at work fundamentally as bad. And that's what sin does. And that's what the enemy does. He's a liar and a deceiver from the beginning. So what is good, he'll tell you is bad. And what is bad, he'll tell you is good. And we now begin to think, no, true life would be rest forever. It'd be vacation on a beach in San Diego forever. No, the vacation on the beach in San Diego is great because you work. Because it creates reprieve. We weren't made to rest like that, rest from work forever. We were made to work. You know, when, um, how many of you guys, raise your hands if you like jazz. Not very many people, but neither here nor there. You know, uh, many of you would know a guy named John Coltrane. And John Coltrane, uh, one of his most famous albums is an album called A Love Supreme. And in A Love Supreme, in the liner notes, at the beginning of a record, which would be kind of like the, in a book, the acknowledgement section, he says this, During the year of 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening, which was to lead me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. I feel this has been granted through all of his grace. All praise be to God. This album, A Love Supreme, is a humble offering to him, to God, to Christ. An attempt to say thank you, God, through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. Now, let me just say how you apply what Coltrane just said. If you think about your life in three G's, I'll make it easy. Gift. The Bible says that every good and precious gift comes from the Father above. But the Bible would say that no gift is meant to ever end upon you. So you take that gift, all the abilities, you ask the questions, God, what have you given me? What have you given me as abilities and strengths? What have you given me as material resources? And you view them as a gift. And what you then do with that gift is you thank God for it. So what is here amazing about John Coltrane is he said, God, you've given me the gift of music. And I ask that you would give me the ability to thank you through the very music I present. And then he says how he does it. So gift, gratitude, thank you, God. And how in the way I'm going to display this thanksgiving to you to make others happy with our music. That's generosity. Gift gratitude, generosity. He takes the gift that he's been given, he offers it to God, and then God says, no gift that I've ever given you is meant to stay upon yourself, so Lord, let me make others happy with this service. He says that specifically through our work, even as we do in our hearts and with our tongues, but through our work, God, let us worship you and make others happy. May he help and strengthen all men in every good endeavor. All of life is all for Jesus. Even in the midst of the sin 
The church is freed from that sin by the grace of God to go, nothing in the world is about me. Sin makes it like that. It's about God and about other people. And so we overcome laziness because of the grace of God and the joy in Jesus Christ and the power of his gospel. We realize that we worship God and God alone. We don't work, so therefore we don't become workaholics. We serve rather than be selfish with our works because Christ first served us. And even in himself says that the God of the universe came not to be served, but to serve and to give all of his life for others as a ransom for many. So what do we do when we follow him as Lord? We come not to be served, but to serve and to give all of our lives in worship to God through serving other people in every good endeavor. Work is intrinsic. Work is also imperative. It's an imperative. God commands us to work. Because work is essential to our humanity, God says this in 2 Thessalonians 3, verses 10 through 12. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command. If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. Now, that sounds radical, right? Like, what in the world? But God is always saying this because he's out for our good and for your good. So when you don't work, you dehumanize yourself. You set yourself something against you and joy. And you do that because you're no longer connected to people. You make it all about yourself. Now, let me tell you who Paul's not talking to here again. He's not talking to those of you who are unemployed. Because you can work trying to find work. Tomorrow, you can put in a good day's work trying to find a job. That's work. Or to you who are incapacitated. Joblessness and incapacitation because of Injury or illness is here in the world because of sin. And the way we move through that of the God, when following the God who has conquered sin, is that even if you're incapacitated, you could work by being the one who writes a thank you card or the one who presents a listening ear or working through an encouraging word or working through being the one that deals thanksgivings and gratitude to people over and over and over again. He's not talking to those people. He's talking to people who are lazy and idle, who've succumbed to the sin in the world, believed the lies. And he says, listen, if you don't work, you don't eat. If you are unwilling to contribute to this whole thing, you're unwilling to contribute to your family, your community, your nation, then you really shouldn't receive the blessings and benefits that they're embarking upon. Now hear me when I say that. Sin is real, folks. Injustice is real. There are many people in the world that don't have opportunities. He's not speaking to them either. He's telling them, work at whatever level you can to be a servant of society. And when we do, the world ends up a far, far, far better place. We must work hard knowing that through our work, we worship God and we serve our neighbor. I'll just end with this idea. Work is instrumental. Work is instrumental instrumental. When we think about work um, being instrumental, we got to think about it this way. Work is instrumental in order, us to f- in order for us to fulfill the command to love our neighbors as ourselves, and it is instrumental, absolutely instrumental, to the mission of the church being a light of the world. 
It's instrumental to fulfill the command to love our neighbors as ourselves and to bring the light of Christ to the world, the mission of the church. So when you think about instrumental, today when you go home and you watch the Super Bowl, there'll be these moments at the beginning of the game, you can find them online right now, that are the keys to a Patriots victory. The keys to a Seahawk victory. I, couldn't even, I almost couldn't even get that out. To a Seahawk <laughs> victory. The keys to the Seahawks win this morning that I read. The first one is in regards to running the ball. They must run the ball. And by that, they mean they've got a powerhouse running back and they got to give him the ball because he's going to open up holes. He's going to create opportunities even for then Russell Wilson to run the ball. But Marshawn Lynch and Russell Wilson must run the ball if the Seahawks are going to win. Passing, Seattle must take and make smart, well-executed shots downfield. So must Tom Brady, but neither here nor there. Seattle will have to take and make smart, well-meaning shots of the field, and then the key attack point. They run a zone read offense. They must commit to the zone read. Even if New England has prepared for it, they must test them and test them often. That's the keys to the deal. Well, there are keys to the church being the church. There are keys for the world operating the way God intended it to operate and for the church to live and flourish the way God intends the world to flourish in the world. There's keys and one of these keys that's instrumental is work. We have to be the people saying to the world how we work in service to our neighbor creates good families or good neighborhoods or good communities or good cities and good nations. There is a thing that came out of the Protestant Reformation that's been called the Protestant work ethic. And by Protestant, we're just the people that committed themselves to the Bibles, believing this is the true story of the whole world. And they began to say, people, people, God has made a world of work and we are workers. And if we want to have flourishing societies, we must work, which means we have to say that and we have to live that. People have to begin to say, wow. These people work incredibly hard, which is where the mission of the church comes in. That people are meant to look at those who follow Jesus and see the manifold glory of God for their real everyday lives. Manifold glory of God is not seen by us going, I'm a Christian. Hmm. You know, like, what does that mean for my everyday life? But when they see the way you work, the way you treat people, the way you handle stress, the way you deal with a difficult boss, then what? And think about this, people. Like, we don't have to strategize how to reach the world. We're around them all the time in whatever level we work. Whether we volunteer or we're employed, we're around these people all the time. Think about the strategy of this. You are in environments all the time, if you are a Christian, around people who don't believe this, and in those environments, you're encountering the same stresses, the same bosses, you're being rebuked for the same failures, you're being praised for similar successes, you're being subject to the same structural dynamics in your companies, corporations, or schools, the same culture, you're eating the same food, you're encountering the same gossip. Now, under the same stresses, the same bosses, the same cultures, the same structures, eating the same food and dealing with the same gossip, how we deal with it is witnessing, conducting ourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel and worthy of the calling to which we've been called. How we deal with that in the power of the Spirit 
is an unavoidable witness. They can't avoid it. Mark Green, in his book by a great title called Thank God It's Monday, says this. In the workplace, the witness comes in a form that cannot be tuned out. Like a radio program or zapped off like a television broadcast. It can't be thrown away like a tract or turned down like an invitation to a church service or a concert. The non-Christians who don't know the grace of God can turn out almost every form of the gospel. But he or she cannot, short of murder or Machiavellian office politics, tune out the spectacle of the Christian living in the power of the Spirit day by day, hour by hour, crisis by crisis. There's an old statement at Gilbert um, that Tom used to say all the time, which he'd say, change lives, change lives. In the power of the Spirit, encountering the same environment, day by day, hour by hour, crisis by crisis, the mission of the church continues witnessing to the gospel. And when they see it, and when you're provided opportunity to say, I follow Christ, the Lord and Savior of the world, is essential and instrumental for the life of the world and the mission of the church. Let's pray. Father, we love you and thank you. We thank you for this glorious gift called to work. May we be faithful with it and put our hands to that which you are putting your hands to in the way you would do it. God, let us do our work the Lord's way in the power of the Holy Spirit. In Christ's name we pray, amen.